HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. I'm Brian Kenny, and you're listening to the Heritage Radio Network, a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, HRN is celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, they've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey, guys, it's January 29th, 2019. We're uh, doing a special episode today on Tuesday here at Roberta's Pizza. I'm Jimmy Carboni, the host of Beer Sessions Radio. All right. We're going to be talking for the first time about uh, issues of building a brewery. One of them that keeps coming up is wastewater, water systems, septic tanks, and things like that. Uh, not so much in the city, but really more in in uh, small towns and, and in rural areas. And um Got some great guests joining me. I just want to give a little backstory on it. You know, over the years we've had, we've heard different stories, and you know, I'm not a brewer. I never owned a brewery, but I just heard about a friend in Suffolk County, New York, who has had a brewery for a while. And earlier this year, the in, the county shut down his tap room, uh, mainly because of things like toilets and water use um, that that impacted a septic system. I've heard of uh, towns in Massachusetts where, because of uh, environmental issues, they can't. Uh, put brewery wastewater at all in the system while other towns have sewage and, and water treatments in, in place. And uh, so it's a very interesting subject. You know, there's also things like uh, California water water shortages and issues of like Bear Republic uh, considering, you know, not expanding or, or even shrinking their brewery because of that. So water, you know, we always talk about water as in one of the key ingredients in beer. You know, there's there's hops, there's there's grain, there's there's yeast and water. But um, we haven't really done a show about wastewater. We did do a show uh, several years ago with the founders of, of Full Sail Brewing, and they were really proud about um, their water-to-beer ratio, which is another thing we're going to talk about today. So we're, we're, we're waiting for um, our one guest, Paul Mankowitz. He's a scientist who's done everything with wetlands and wastewater treatment. Um, in, in studio, we got a great guest. Um, he's, uh, I call him the brewery architect here in New York, John Bedard. John, how are you? Not bad. How are you? And John, we were joking that, you know, Seems like most of the new uh, breweries in New York City 
and and more in New York State, you, you've been the architect for. Is it true that you get paid in beer? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, it's definitely been offered that way um, from some people when we first start, um, just to kind of get the conversation started and um, kind of an introduction. It's always important to um, try, you know, a client's beer, make sure, you know, we're a match and we like what each other does and but no, luckily, uh, you know, in cold hard cash most of the time. So, but I always do enjoy going back and and you know seeing how these places evolve with their beer. You know, when they start as most people start as home brewers, and then you know obviously things change when you increase the scale of things. But and there's yeah. a couple um, breweries that are opening in the city that you're working on. Yeah, so Evil Twin just uh, opened their tap room uh, last Friday, and they're. Um, selling cans out of there, and they have a smaller tap room. They also are doing something um, over nowadays as well. We're also working on a Wild East Brewery, which is coming your way. Um, I'm not going to say the time, but soon in Gowanus, um, along with working uh, with uh, some things out of the city up in uh, Middletown with Equilibrium. And then um, far north in Auburn, New York, with Prison City. So and that's great. We're going to dive more into that. So, so in terms of like water systems, definitely it seems like in New York City we're lucky. I mean, you've got a lot of uh, infrastructure in place, sewers, and and water supply. Um, just overall picture, you know, how does that impact uh, new breweries, and especially in places like upstate and smaller towns? I mean, it, it's a big concern, as you said. You know, water is such a integral ingredient in making beer. And you really do go through a lot of water. I think it's something close to a gallon per pint uh, of wasted water, used water that actually doesn't go into the beer. Um, and it, you know, as you said, in New York City, you know, most places that we look at and we kind of build out already have those sewer connections, so you're not really kind of worrying about tying into the sewer and, and dealing with those connections. But then upstate, they don't necessarily have such you know infrastructure in place already so you're kind of dealing with bringing it to the site and depending on how remote those sites are you know it's a lot of work to kind of get it from the road and and it may make places not viable to use and you may have to look for something that is pre-existing you know and rather than building new or uh was pre-existing use that required a lot of water because you know breweries are gonna have a lot of drains because they have to get all that water out um, and, you know, I, did, I did notice that. And usually in breweries, it, 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 the whole thing is about all the floor drains. It's the, it's the mo like, you know, it's really, besides having the right height and ceilings, it's the drainage. Like, because if you have a place that doesn't drain, it's just disgusting. And, you know, the other important part about brewing is sanitation. And, you know, you can't have sanitation without being able to clean up. And you can't clean up and get rid of that water. You're not going to have a clean spot to brew. And some of the ratio, I mean, a lot of you listeners know a lot about brewing, you know, Seems like typical ratios for every uh, one pint of beer, there's probably seven pints of water. So seven to one ratio seems to be a typical uh, ratio of water use to beer output. It could be as high as 10 times in some situations. But, you know, we know that some really forward-thinking brewers like Stone Brewing and, and Full Sail are at maybe only three-to-one ratio yeah. or, or less. Um, we have one guest who's calling in, a special guest as industry professional, um, an engineer from Virginia. It's it's Evan Bowl. Evan, you're on the line. Let's just say hello to us and tell us a little bit about what you're doing. Hey, good afternoon, guys. Um, yeah, so I'm a wastewater engineer. I uh, work with Hazen & Sawyer. It's an engineering firm based in Midtown, actually. 
and my office is in uh, Richmond, Virginia, just a block away from Vail and Ardent, and um, Boston Brewing is right next door, so it's kind of a, a nice hotbed uh, to have a desk. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, my primary focus um, in, my, in my work in, uh, is kind of focusing on the utility, the utility perspective. Uh, you know, how are brewery wastewater volumes, concentrations, uh, timing, uh, all that sort of stuff, how does that impact the public water utility from the pipes, you know, in the road all the way to the treatment facilities uh, downstream and then ultimately discharge. So that's, that's, that tends to be my focus. Uh, our clientele is primarily public utilities. So we, we assist them in kind of looking at, okay, what, what are the impacts you know, how can we better manage uh, what these breweries do and how they operate and what we allow them to do. So what do you mean by a public utility, like a, a water treatment plant or public works? Yeah, public utility, just you pay your water bill, you pay your sewer bill, that's the public utility. So any, any wastewater, um, uh, you know, that goes to a city sewer, that is the public utility. They have to convey the wastewater, um, you know, wherever. To, you might see pump stations around. Um, you see wastewater treatment facilities around. Uh, the public utility is the owner and operator of those facilities, and they have to manage everything when you flush the toilet uh, to when you discharge, uh, you know, wastewater effluent. Uh, know, it, it's, uh, <laughs> it's overwhelming. You know, I'm, I'm used to being in a big city where we just, like, turn on the water and uh, <laughs> pour things down the drain. I've, I've heard things about in rural areas, uh, like I said, some friends in more rural areas have had to deal with uh, limitations on the number of seats in their restaurant. I know that happens sometimes up in the Hudson Valley uh, based on, you know, the septic tank. Um, are, are there, can you give us an overview of the issues that come up um, in terms of, of wastewater when you're opening a brewery or a tap room? Yeah, absolutely. Um, some of the, the big picture items, and, and you hit on a great point. If you're if you are you know lucky enough to have a brewery that you want to open in a city or a town that has existing you know sewer infrastructure and can treat wastewater, that makes your life a lot easier. Um, now there might be costs associated with that. We can we can talk about in, in detail a little later if you're interested. Um, but you know that's that makes life a little easier if you're out in the country or on the mountains where it's beautiful and picturesque and you want to open a brewery it can create problems from available you know potable water from a well or you know wherever else and then you know wastewater treatment uh, with a septic tank a drain filled you know the soils that are available uh, around the brewery and that impacts how much you can percolate uh, treated wastewater into the ground so there are all kinds of these engineering principles that kind of build a boundary condition of what you can absolutely do so Let's just think for a minute about a city. You're in New York or Richmond, where I am, and a, bre- a brewery discharges uh, wastewater into a, a, into a pipe that ultimately goes to a treatment facility. The gallon of wastewater that generally comes from a brewery is so much stronger in carbon content and in, uh, in, in nutrients uh, that it makes it more difficult to treat that wastewater. So that's a consideration that a lot of breweries kind of look at and, you know, does it make sense for us to treat the wastewater and then send it to the public utility? Does it make sense, you know, financially just to do it ourselves? Does it make sense for somebody to haul it and do it somewhere else at a private facility? Does it make sense for us to treat it? Um, those are kind of the big questions when, you know, when a brewery wants to consider, you know, the feasibility of opening is, 
You know, what are going to be the cost impacts for the high-strength sewer that we have to put into the system volumetrically and then just, you know, concentrations of the, the constituents in that wastewater? Wow. So those are the kind of the big picture issues you think about. And, there, and, and it, you know, there are a lot of nuanced things that kind of fall off from that. But those, kind of, those are kind of the big picture questions, you know, water availability, and then what are we going to do with the wastewater? Well, on that note, I'm, I'm drinking, well, the closest thing to Virginia, I've got a, a burial, um, it's called Bone Digger Pale Ale from North Carolina, which is on tap here at Roberta's Pizza. Um, we're drinking this because we keep, we keep track of what we drink on air. So cheers to the guys in burial. <laughs> Um, I know, Evan, you're buddies with our producer, Justin Kennedy. Um, so you guys grew up together. Are, are you a big beer fan? Do you, do you ever go to Hardywood? Is that near you in Richmond? I do. I do. That They're, they're one of the first craft breweries uh, to open in Richmond and kind of help build the scene around here. Um, Legend Brewing is one of the, the uh, I would say, that one of the first kind of longstanding uh, craft breweries in Richmond. I've been around for, I would say, 20, 30 years. I don't know the exact number, but a long time, uh, way before, you know, this, this was kind of a thing. Um, but Hardywood was kind of one of the, the forefront folks uh, on, right on the cusp of the bleeding edge, you can say, of, of opening a brewery here. And they had uh, a brewery kind of in an industrial area of, of town, um, and they opened, gosh, it must have been 2011, 2012. A great, you know, great quality beer, great facility. Uh, I think they kind of outgrew that area, and they just opened a big, big, beautiful facility on the western end, edge of Richmond. Uh, and it just so happens to be near uh, the Capital One uh, headquarters, so it's perfect for folks that, you know, kind of want to bang out of work and head over there for a cold beer after work. But, um, yeah, that's both of those facilities are great, and I think the, uh, the larger new one, they kind of tend to focus on production, and maybe the, uh, the existing kind of smaller one in the industrial area here in town tends to focus on maybe some uh, more exp- experimental beers. I don't know if that's the full plan, but that's kind of what I've heard yeah. might be the focus. Evan, hold on a second. So um, our arch- architect friend, uh, John's here. John, tell us a little bit about you're working on some projects outside of New York City, so uh, Equilibrium Librium and Prison City. What are some um, water and wastewater challenges you might find there that you don't find in New York City? And maybe from that you have a question for Evan. Yeah, I, I mean, just uh, just to kind of bring up something, um, just because you're in Richmond, we actually worked on a project down there called Greenleafs. I don't know if you've been there. It's Greenleafs Pool Hall. Um, it's in yeah. downtown Richmond. So, just yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's a funny yeah. coincidence. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, so you know, as we were kind of talking before we got started, some interesting things about um, projects that aren't in New York City is the the difference is that you're either going to have a new build. Or you're you're gonna like lucky enough to find a building that um, exists already and that you know has the connections and you can kind of just basically plug and play. Um, you know, up in Middletown, New York, where Equilibrium is located, there they actually just took a new space um, just down the road from their existing facility, which used to be a bank. Um, so it's you know it, it has the infrastructure from a structural standpoint um, for their new equipment there. But we're going to have to look at obviously, you know, what you know what existing connections they have in terms of incoming water and sewer. Just because obviously it was a bank, it wasn't a restaurant or a factory. But you know, luckily, you know, this is also kind of in you know downtown area of a city. So hopefully, the sewer will be there. But you know, the other project, Prison City up in Auburn, which is going to be you know from a new development from the ground up, um, will be a much more interesting. 
um, experience because we'll have to look to see, you know, where are the sewers? Are there sewers? You know, is it going to be a matter of doing a leach field or, or a septic tank or a retention tank or something like that um, in terms of... It's actually, I'm, I'm very interested to hear that Richmond has so many options to handling wastewater because I, I don't know that, you know, bigger cities necessarily even have that in mind. You know, I think, I, you know, so I was, what, what, do the, what do breweries normally go with? Do they go with just flushing it down the drain and paying the city utility or do they go with filtering their own before it goes down the drain or, or sending it elsewhere? Well, in Richmond itself, um, I think there are a a multitude of strategies, and it kind of depends on the size and the complexity and the maturity, I would say, of the breweries. Some of the smaller ones, I think, simply would flush it down. Um, And then as you get into the medium size, obviously they would attempt to pull out, you know, spent grains and yeast and, and, uh, you know, uh, dispose of those somewhere else, farms, et cetera. Um, And then... uh, when it comes to, you know, just discharging the remainder of the processed wastewater, they would discharge it in the sewer, um, but they would have to pay the um, kind of high-strength uh, waste surcharge rates that yeah. a lot of breweries deal with, and it just it's just a, a fact of life, you know, um, like I described before, that gallon of, of wastewater from a brew is, is a heck of a lot harder to treat than, you know, a gallon of wastewater from your house. So um, there is a surcharge associated with that. So I think that's what a lot of folks are doing. And then, uh, you know, there are other um, there are other larger breweries that might have some sort of other um, agreement with the public utility, uh, because you know I talked about the uh, the wastewater is so high in carbon. I mean, we're obviously looking at ways to um, you know manage the carbon cycle uh, as we start to think about you know sustainability practices. And things of that nature, um, you know, it's, it can be beneficial to manage those kind of small volumes of wastewater that's generated at breweries that tend to have the highest concentration of carbon. Uh, and you can uh, maybe work something out with the wastewater treatment facility that you can haul that separately, and they can use it for um, as a carbon source for you know nutrient removal in their effluent, or yeah. maybe they can use it in their their anaerobic digesters to supercharge their digesters and help produce more methane, which, you know, they, they're a high-volume methane producer, so they could use it for a lot of beneficial, you know, sustainability-related items. So I think, I think we see a lot of different uh, strategies, and as these breweries, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of growing and, and kind of uh, growing the science of brewing, right, and then the awareness of all the water impacts, et cetera. I think people are getting more creative of what they're trying to do, so um, I think it's kind of neat. It always seems so interesting that smaller towns actually – kind of are more nimble than uh, big cities in terms of when these new issues arise, you know. I think sometimes, you know, like New York can be very happy in, to get this new manufacturing or influx of manufacturing, you know, so it's just not tech jobs and such. But then they don't actually think about down the road what effects that actually has on the environment here and, you know, the environment, you know, long term throughout. So that's kind of interesting to hear that Richmond already has – you know, some of this stuff already kind of thought about and, you know, they're charging more, uh, you know, for to handle that wastewater because the only the, the only closest analogous I have is actually that, you know, we, we swap out so that um, breweries have two different water meters so you can meter the water you're using in your production rather than just your tap room so you actually pay less in sewer charges rather than more. So that's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. 
um, you know, just that I don't even know. Well, why is far. that? Because the, the water goes into, becomes goes, beer. Yeah, it goes in the beer. So you're not like, you know, because otherwise sewer charges in New York City are basically as much water. As, they're just assuming as much water as you're using that coming out of the tap is going down the drain. So, you know, with that second meter, you can be like, you, you know, you file and you make your claim that like, look, all that water went into production. So, you know, you only can charge me for 10% of that going down the drain or something. So whatever that calculation is. Um, so it's just interesting that, you know, they don't actually, so they, they thought about that a little bit, but they haven't actually thought about, you know, kind of a lot of this other impact that it does have. And, you know, I think you were, you, you were already mentioning about California as being one of the places where, you know, with the droughts, obviously they're going to have to find a way of, you know, how do you keep making beer when there's less water? You know, I was, I was looking at, um, I think it's Growler Mag. There was an article by Michael Agnew from 2016. Look it up, growlermag.com. And um, I didn't really think about it because we're, we're here in New York, you know, northeast. We, we've always got water, greatest water, one of the greatest water cities in, in, the, in the country, bagels and pizza and beer. But um, to, to, to read about places like Chico, California, having to negotiate with a brewery like Sierra Nevada about whether they can, you know, reduce their water use or... You know, a, a brewery like Bear Republic, feeling that they may have to find another state to move to. Um, those are real big water issues. Yeah, I don't know if Evan, you've had to deal with anything like that uh, in in your work. Yeah, you know, fortunately in Virginia, um, we don't really have that problem quite as much. At least in uh, Central Virginia, we uh, we have plenty of water. We're right here on the James River. Um, however, you know, as you move into Eastern Virginia. Uh, they do have some groundwater availability challenges because they're getting to the closer to the coast, uh, so they're more reliant on groundwater um, in many of the areas, and uh, they're you know they're seeing more and more restrictions on the volumes you can pull out of the ground, um, and I think that's you're seeing that a lot of places, right? Um, so I think that can be a constraint. Now, now it's sort of interesting, and maybe if you guys are interested in, in talking about this, is you know uh, thinking about the reuse water that some of the breweries are starting to consider using. I know that um, uh, it's Stone, um, California, working with the city, uh, they have the Reclaim Water Initiative from the city itself. Um, I think that they've done some one-off batches. I don't know if they're in full production. Uh, I, I just, I believe I heard this news story some time ago, but um, using, you know, uh, uh, reclaimed wastewater for brewing, directly for brewing. So, like, if we're so, ho- hosing down equipment, that kind of water, or is, is well, that, what what water it could be reclaimed? But, you know, Evan, stay on with us. We're gonna have to take a short break. Um, we're gonna do a little a little sponsorship mention, and we'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, 
a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Brian Kinney, uh, Hearst Ranch, you are an awesome dude, man. I've met you many times over the years in the Heritage Radio Network studio. Real great supporter. And uh, we were just waiting for our other guest, Paul Paul Manquist, has just joined us. Hey, Paul, how are you? Come on and sit down. Um, we've got, just, just put on the headphones, and Paul's a great uh, water scientist. Just, just listen in. We've got Evan from Richmond, uh, Virginia who's a, an engineer on. So, Evan, you were just starting to talk about uh, the reuse of water, and um, it's great because Paul Mankiewicz is, uh, that's kind of his, his turf as well. Just bring us back up to speed with, with re possible reuses of water, and you're talking about what they were doing at Stone Brewing. Right, yeah, we were just talking on, I guess, the topic of, you know, water scarcity and how that might impact, brew, you know, brewery viability and operability. Um, I was just recalling, I, I looked it up while we were uh, sitting here during the break, and, um, you know, City of San Diego has a, an initiative, uh, the city itself, uh, to treat wastewater effluent uh, and call it reuse water, highly treated, you know, uh, highly sophisticated methodology of, of treating wastewater to drinking water standards. And then um, you know the brewery itself uh, using it for uh, for brewing the beer. So I'm am curious, you know, if, if we're looking at California long term, if this is something that, as a trend, that uh, we're seeing more of this closed loop stuff uh, out in the public, and it gains public acceptance, and that's a big hurdle to get through. Um, but I, I believe that's something we'll see more frequently, uh, you know, in the breweries. You know, breweries are, tend to be front and center with a lot of sustainability movements and. And uh, you know, trying to demonstrate good stewardship uh, towards those principles. So I, I think that you know we're going to see more and more of that. But I'm, I'm curious if anyone else here has, has seen that as well elsewhere. That's Evan. That is right. A great intro. Um, so our, our next guest, Paul Manquis. Paul, just introduce yourself because we're getting more into your area okay. of expertise. I'm a I'm a uh, have a doctorate in development of biology, ecology. And I have been building green infrastructure for the last, oh, geez, decades. And it's interesting you mentioned San Diego because uh, literally in 1988, uh, John Todd and George Shibaniglas had built a entirely ecologically based wastewater treatment facility right on, uh, the, right near the near the Pacific. And uh, in one end came wastewater, and in the other end came out something pretty close to drinking water quality. And I actually ran in the first uh, metal removal mass balance for a wastewater treatment system, one of John Todd's solar aquatics uh, up in Providence. And the neat thing, you could actually, they had a big jewelry industry there, and so they would dump this me metals, which are wa far worse than what you see in any homebrew <laughs> or <laughs> exquisite craft-made material. And virtually everything was picked out by the, by the microbial consortia in the plants. So... You know, nature does work at uh, this feature, just a matter of getting kind of the right interface. And by that, I mean something, uh, picture something very simple, like a soil column, like um, a bunch of rushes in a wetland. And the amount of work, uh, 
since we don't have we don't have images here, I'll, I'll I'll use a word that tries to cover it. We'll call it biogeochemical capacity. It's just they do this work because the surface area, like our lungs, like our intestines, like our intestinal tract, is just enormous. It's just we subvert it, we short circuit it by throwing things down the sewer. Yeah, and then you know, in in particular, I mean, I'm going to just ask you to repeat that word that you just said, Paul. Let me practice. Okay. <laughs> but um, welcome to the show. I'm glad you came in. You know, the, there's talking again about re- reusing the water from, from breweries. Um, I would like to just say that we had mentioned um, ratios, like typical brewery might use seven times water as to how much beer comes out, but there's ways to reduce that. But I've also heard, I don't think, I don't think that breweries are that bad. I've, I've heard that the almond industry in California sucks up a lot more water than you think, and you're talking about things that are a little more toxic, like jewelry and heavy metal industries. Um, but, but for breweries, Paul, um, what are some ways to create closed loops? You said some, mentioned some things, artificial wetlands. I don't know if there's any experience with uh, fish farming. Um, uh, yeah, there's actually a, a large number of ways to go. But you know, I, I noticed the features of the wastewater you've sent along, the relatively high sugars and carbon compounds. And that sounds terrible because it's no, no good for anything we drink. But we, every time we turn the stove on, methane comes out, and methane is produced by a consortium of bacteria. Not so simple for the average brewery, but, you know, if, you, if you're in or close to, like, a New York City or even a Trenton, they have literally anaerobic digesters, methane-producing facilities where that sugar would... It, be turned right into literally gas we would use in stoves. There's a cycle that would have to be made. Uh, in China, uh, 30 years ago, every village had a methanogen- a little methanogenic system with which they made not pure methane, but biogas. So uh, there's much simpler ways. It's, they're, they're called... It, it's, it's basically a fixed film reactor, and picture either a big wheel with surfaces or the old days they used to strip water over rocks. Bacteria develop, and they literally would take out all the sugar and, uh, and to use another technical term, all the gunk. And it really makes a huge difference just having a, a few cycles. In China, I built uh, for wastewater a uh, multiply recycled water system where we got pretty close to drinking water out the other side. And it's a matter of just getting this, just picture, again, you're, you're looking at something like a inverted, extroverted uh, intestine, basically all this surface, it literally, uh, the carbon is just a feedstock. And you just got to find somebody to, to feed. And the, the bacteria, as they say, have their hands up. They can do all this. We just have to get them to the right place. And John, is this giving you ideas for a... Uh what you might work on upstate? I mean, for sure. I, like, you know, it's interesting because I, I, I agree with you when you had said earlier that um, breweries are, you know, would like to be or they are on the forefront of, uh, of you know, reducing carbon footprint and, and, you know, green technology. And I think, you know, these are all, you know, great ideas and things that, you know, trying to create a closed-loop system or doing, you know, something to reuse water or, you know, just not throwing everything out is something I think every brewery that I've worked on would be interested in. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, with them all ganged up together, they would make a big difference, you know, to uh, to going in that direction. Um, 
I think it's, it's very interesting because it, you know it it seems much more complex than it is in terms of um, you know kind of getting this stuff out of the water. But you know you're so right that it, you know nature will do it if you if you allow it to, and if you can just figure a way of doing it in such a dense city, then it'd be great. Quick, um, I know a brewery that you're working on, helping to open right now in the city, John. The, Evil Twin Brewing in, in Ridgewood, Queens. We're, we're drinking one of their beers, Evil Twin, um, the Ridgewood Resurrection beer. Yeah. So thanks for bringing that in. So, um, Paul, you just got excited uh, with what John was saying. Well, because uh, how many people who run brew pubs or breweries like to pay those electric bills and those heating bills? Just uh, raise your hands. Anyway, just <laughs> just down the street from here in Red Hook, I have a 12,000-square-foot factory. He saves 40% on his air conditioning and 24% on his heating because of a green roof. So picture the partially treated water, apotranspiring. It takes with it when it leaves and evaporates an amazing 580 calories per gram. That means about 200-and-something square feet of roof evaporates a ton of air conditioning a day, which we buy for $20 or thereabouts. So literally, it's money that drops the operation cost by turning your roof into a place to grow hops, to grow barley, to make a native meadow. The same thing for the walls. If we've got 34 square miles of roof space in New York City, we've got, what is the number, 30,000 square miles of walls. Every last brewery, every last brew pub has got walls, often south and west facing, and even north facing, just making biodiversity and home for birds. You know, it just is a magnificent opportunity. And it's not, nothing, the brewers, brewers are way, way, way ahead of this because the world is just like, we, we throw down the sewers three, what's the number, 240 or 340 cubic kilometers of wastewater every year uh, around the world. It's just insane. That If you actually use that to capture carbon, it would be one-tenth of the excess carbon we put up into the atmosphere. It's just an opportunity that we have. Yeah, so there's a lot of, and so things like green roofs are, are a good option. Uh, John, you know, in terms of New York City politics, I just read that um, public advocate candidate Rafi Espinal got some support from Mayor de Blasio about uh, a, a new law for new buildings to have green roofs. Did you have been following that? You, I, huge meeting yesterday, actually, a city council meeting on all of this. Uh, that the uh, uh, that the uh, their uh, environmental committee. So they are looking at. Uh, truly forward, uh, so we're $15 per square foot tax abatement for green roofs. So it's on the track that we have never seen before in the it's, city. It's great to hear because there's so much, there's so much, you know, talk of this stuff and, and, and um, in, but the actual doing is, is the most difficult part. Uh, you know, I've done some solar cell installations um, in, in the city and it, it just like the, the process of getting installed bureaucratically it's so much more difficult than the physical installation and it, it is it's crazy i know they had passed something before uh, like a, a two or three years ago regarding that for two or three family homes or one or two family homes sorry um if you did a gut renovation you were obligated to run the electricity up to the roof and have it solar ready um as part of the requirement of your build out um which in, is good in practice but then the actual or, or good idea and then in practice it was very difficult to accomplish and difficult to because you can't you know the, the electric department doesn't want to see wires not connected to something so they don't want future stuff 
you know, so it's, it's one of those things where it's like a half-cooked idea from the, <laughs> the politicians not making its way to, um, you know, to practice. And, and there's other issues, too, with, you know, doing green roofs and, and, and other, you know, kind of um, environmentally conscious ideas that, you know, bureaucracy in New York City makes it very hard to implement and to, to do. On that note, uh, Evan, are you still on the line in Richmond? I am. Great. Uh, do you want to weigh in on anything that, that Paul brought up? Um, still talking about reuse of water. And is, are there any current um, kind of closed systems for breweries so that that, that water that comes out um, gets treated and, and, and doesn't get put in wastewater at all? Yeah, no, not that I'm aware of. Um, it's, it's a pretty, you know, uh, labor-intensive, uh, you know, cost-prohibitive uh, system that I would think that um, breweries, at least now, um, and not to mention the expertise to run a system like that, um, I, I, I just don't see that happening uh, in the short term. I think, you know, the, the, best, the best opportunity for uh, at least reducing the potable water purchase from a brewery is if, you know, they have a water utility that they can purchase uh, reuse water from. So we're, we're seeing that number grow all the time. Um, but, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't see the uh, closed loop within the brewery uh, right now. Uh, but hopefully in foreseeable future, as those technologies go down, uh, they're more reliable and a little bit easier to operate. Great. Hey, Paul, a uh, question for you. So I know you um, did a lot of research and work in the States, but tell us more about when you were in China. Uh, do, did you feel like there was more openness or to, to these types of projects? It's got two sides, really. Uh, they, yeah, they're open to a great deal. And I, I, I got to build things there that I, it takes, as, as John was implying, <laughs> way too long to get done here. Uh, I, on the other hand, I was also stunned because with a billion farmers, um, they, the power of life seems to escape them. So uh, as Evan says, this is all doable. It just, we haven't exactly worked out the economics. I don't think because it's that difficult. It's because of what, there's these impasses to trying the parts. So China was wonderful. It was just magnificent because they will just try anything. And I literally built, I built all the parts of things that I have, some of which I've laid out here over, you know, 35 years. But getting, getting people to see, and let me ask you a question, Jimmy. Do you, uh, on a very hot day down in the Lower East Side, do you go under, under a tree Sure, man. Yeah, I, I figured you would do that. And, and the reason is because the, phys, phys, the tree isn't... Ex- don't, don't cut down my tree, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going I'm I'm to... Cre- it creates its own wind, too, gonna, doesn't it? I'm going I'm to put aside my lumber business, and okay, we'll, we'll, let that, <laughs> we'll let that one go. But it's just because trees partition energy. The top leaves actually boil off hot air. The bottom leaves drop cool air. And that happens in China and every place else. They could not understand something that I learned as an undergraduate, that basically life is a force. And it's, it's an amazing for some place like China. It's not that it's widely, but, but I, I, part, part of this I got from the people who started the Yale School of Forestry and just, you know, scientists going back decades. And then there's Vernatsky in Russia who actually laid out this whole framework of, as you, as you said before, was it you, biogeochemistry, uh, really understanding that life transforms planets. Transforms planets is going to transform cities. If it can transform cities, it can transform breweries. Uh, but we have to learn, and it's just, uh, as Evan indicates, it, there's complexities that we 
But I don't think we're that far away where we could just invest the uh, energy and effort to test out some of the pieces together. Great. Um, we're gonna. There's another beer that John brought from Evil Twin Brewing. Um, we're going to taste that. We're going to take a short break and come back and talk more about you guys are going to tell me how to make your ideal green brewery. How about that? On Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Check us out, heritageradionetwork.org. We're talking about uh, building breweries, brewery wastewater, and we've got some great guests. Paul Mankiewicz, scientist, John Hello. Bedard, brewery architect, and Evan Bowl, uh, also an engineer from Virginia. So, guys, we're uh, wrapping the show up. Let's talk about, let's build from scratch the ideal green brewery. Who wants to start on that one? I'm going to defer. I think well, Paul, <laughs> Paul, you go for it because you, you've you've been talking about this for thirty uh, yeah, years. I, 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 I can I can see the I can see the mud on John's hands from building things, but I'll I'll, I'll get it I'll get into this. So the dust, uh, it's a, it's just as nature works. You connect one piece of the flow to the next to the next, and you end up with something like drinking water. They figured out a very long time ago, um, the better part of a thousand years, that if you take cholera infected water and run it through a sand heap about a meter deep, you can drink it. And that was a while back. So, and we have, we built the first reservoir system designed to support a city of eight million people. Uh, back in the 18, whatever it was, 30s and 40s, John Jarvis, John Bluebill Jarvis. Uh, we know how to do the parts. We even know something about the way pieces are filtered. But we have yet to re understand that basically it's the diversity of structure that is a living filter as we are. And the other piece is that multiple steps, iterative steps, basically get things closer and closer to almost any quality you may ever need. The final piece is that water and plants control climate. So you could literally use the whole water flow or some fraction of it to both beer and also regulate the climate of your building which is a fortune uh, in terms of overall operation so if you started with those let me take put that package together hand it to a design to an exquisite designer of breweries um, and then we're you're on track and I've, I've I've seen some breweries where they're they're trying you know that they'll use a uh, re reuse refurbished wood they're trying to maybe tap into some geo you know heating or, or cooling in the earth putting on a green roof. Um, John? Sure. I, I mean, something in my, just listening to this and having this discussion, it, it there's some interesting irony, irony where it's like, 
people at some point in in this world were drinking beer because beer was safer than water. Um, and now we're, we're trying to kind of, you know, uh, save water by making beer. Um, it, it, what's interesting is that I think, um, you know, this, these are, is beer, you know, these breweries that are opening now, these craft breweries are really kind of, um, you know, they're renewing this interest, um, in an industry that was a really big industry a long time ago when things were a lot more wasteful and, and people weren't really thinking about the environment. And, and I think it does present an interesting opportunity to use this momentum to, you know, really, besides making craft beer, to thinking about how industry can be beneficial, not from just one aspect of life, but from an environmental standpoint. I, I, I think, you know, these the people that are creative enough to think of these breweries and, and establish them and make this beer, I think are looking for other ways of like, you know, helping the environment because they all realize that when water runs out, their product runs out. So that doesn't work. You have to somehow kind of, and, and you know, they also, heating and cooling the space in a brewery is difficult and it's costly. So if there's a way of saving money and then they can put more money into making better beer, that's what they're going to do. So Just go back to that intro. So you said many years ago... People were drinking beer because it was actually safer to drink than the water. So now we're trying to make beer to save water. You know, so it's like this interesting, you know, just loop and, and juxtaposition of situation. Wow. So to build on what John said, imagine... You talked about this geothermal piece. So suppose you have to put a parking lot around your brewery or brew pub. So however big that is, picture that whole parking lot lifted up three, six, eight, ten feet, uh, maybe more. Then you take basically broken beer and wine bottles, tequila bottles if you like. You make a tequila. essentially a kind of uh, bro- kind of broken stone aggregate out of it. You fill it up. It's got someplace between one-third and one-fifth void space. All the water that comes out of the brewery can then go in there. You can make that a fixed film filter, and basically it will filter the whatever's in that you dump into it. But you could also have the pipes in it that are the heat exchangers for running your building for doing geothermal. And it costs you, because you usually have to drill into the ground, you don't. You basically just build a parking lot or a street side or a, or a sidewalk or whatever underneath the foundation of the building and literally make what is a, a thermal battery. Uh, it's also the same thing at, at, at the same time a treatment system. And your property cost has not changed because it's the same landscape you're sitting on anyway. And you did it with the waste material for those people who keep on breaking those beer bottles like I used to do at your bar. <laughs> John, anything like that resonates with you? It, it does. I just, you know, I, luckily there's, you know, we don't have to do that much parking in New York City, but... Uh, I mean, I think this kind of creativity is is needed and and necessary, and kind of implementing it into the city will, you know, sooner rather than later is the way to go. And, and Evan, anything like that uh, that you're working on, or anybody's talked about creative use of spaces? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're always we're always looking at you know ways to reduce um, you know hauling of waste, repurposing. I think those are those are great ideas. Um, you know, we tend to build a lot of gray infrastructure when it comes to wastewater treatment facilities because they tend to be pretty conservative in approach and construction. But when it comes to breweries and, you know, uh, private facilities like that, 
I think these are great opportunities, uh, you know, unique and great ways to sort of demonstrate, uh, you know, uh, that this is, these are feasible things to do. Uh, it really kind of sets a great example because you're getting a lot of transient kind of folks coming in and out of those places. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's, it just creates a good uh, good example. But kind of going back to your, your question of, and I was thinking about it while, while the gentleman here was talking, and some great ideas, but the, the ideal, you know, green brewery, um, you know, I always kind of look at the energy and water aspects since I'm looking at, you know, uh, water treatment because those are the bit, two big aspects I look at. Um, you know, we talked about the closed-loop uh, potable water system. Uh, I think that that could be feasible once, you know, we talked about the technologies and the, uh, the viability of operating those systems uh, on a smaller scale there. Um, and then we didn't really talk about, like, uh, you know, wastewater treatment on site, but, you know, a lot of the larger macro breweries have anaerobic treatment. Uh, some of the smaller ones do as well, but uh, the larger ones is highly efficient. Some of the uh, upflow, you know, anaerobic sludge blankets, things of that nature, and they can create significant amounts of power. I know uh, uh, um, New Belgium does that and creates a significant offset. Uh, so that's, you know, that's something that could benefit that. And then, you know, any sort of, uh, you know, uh, Paul was talking about uh, green roof stormwater capture, um, and then there's a natural attenuation and treatment uh, capturing that. And you know, if there's real estate, certainly you, you know, not in New York, but maybe in Virginia, some of these estate breweries, you know, they're growing hops, uh, capture cistern water. I mean, uh, especially parking lot water. If that can be captured through a BMP or something like that, um, you know, try to try to think about going off the grid and reducing the uh, carbon footprint. I think that's those are very viable things, and I think people. Have, really thinking about that as they're developing these breweries. New Belgium is just a fantastic example of that. You know, you guys make me think about <laughs> every drop of water that I, that I use. Paul, give us some more inspiration. To me, you're, you're the water whisperer today. <laughs> well, well it, it, it's, a, it's a simple matter. They talk, about, they talk about net zero buildings. You know, I hate aiming. As Aristotle said, if, if you don't aim for the barn, you won't hit it. Something like this. Don't quote me exactly. He was, he was, he was he better, more articulate. <laughs> uh, it's possible. I have a green roof to capture something like a kilogram of carbon per square meter. With a little more water, I could double or triple that. Uh, and basically, if you add the walls, please let's not forget the walls or the street sides around it. You literally can make a piece of built infrastructure behave like nature simply because what nature does is she holds water and gives it back to the life that actually captures carbon and creates biodiversity and so that principle is so straightforwardly simple and you know what it looks like when you see it it's a meadow full of golden rods and asters it's basically the the trees the shrubs and the and all we could build that if we took our waste stream there is no difference from broken beer bottles and the sand silt and clay is sort of miraculous, but basically no difference. They're, they're the same basic silica architectural basis of what soils are. We need to just essentially create the world we want to live in around every brewery and every other structure. And it will also recycle things, as Evan states. This is not simple, but we, unless you put the problem in front of you, you're not going to solve it. Well, it's pretty exciting. I mean, I think some big foundations should put some prizes together for... Uh, creating the most green brewery in terms of the whole picture. I'll tell you, I think it would be a great tourist attraction. If, if I were building a, a brewery where I wanted uh, people to come and drink and hang out, 
Uh, that sounds like the way to do it. Green walls, green roofs. I mean, it's definitely worth, it, worth creating an edge because, you know, everyone else has beer. So what else do you have besides yeah, the beer? Yeah, and I have to say this. I don't think it needs to be legislated. I mean, I'd rather see people create prizes <laughs> and awareness and say, hey, you know, I want to go to the green brewery. I want we're going to promote, you know, like full sail and stone saying we're only using th- th- three times water for every every, every yeah. one of beer. Um, I think we need to recognize that, and I, I rather—it's a whole other thing about the industry. We can talk about it in the future, but leading by example and by by rewards uh, rather than legislating, like you said, forcing people to 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 run uh, electric to their roof for future for future use. Yeah, for future um, solar voltage. But when they're not even yeah. using it. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, it, it just. It's a half measure, half thought by politicians that don't understand the process and how it's done. I, I mean, I don't. I agree. I don't. I don't want to see more legislation, but it would be good to have offsets for for you know smaller breweries that are looking to do green technology and, and make efforts to reducing their carbon footprint and, and kind of reducing waste um, because. You know, these systems do cost, and, and when you're starting off, you don't have as much money as you always would like. So, you know, if there was some something in place where, you know, as I said, they put an extra water meter and they pay less on their sewers, if there was something else that kind of incentivized that process, I, I think it would help drive it a little bit more. And another show we could do, and Paul, I'd love to have you back. We could, we could look more at a state like California that's having serious drought issues, and um, you know what some of the creative solutions will be by the bigger breweries, you know, down the road. We're going to have to wrap it up. Let me just uh, give a shout-out. The second beer you brought us again, Evil Twin Brewing. Uh, what's the name of that, John? It was uh, Evil Twin Brewing by the end of the day. So really excited about our good buddies just down the road. R- Ridgewood, uh, Queens, is actually just, it's like <laughs> the next stop after Bushwick. Yeah. Um, and Yeppe's an interesting guy because he's from Denmark. He loves Brooklyn. But I think when he when they showed him that space, he thought he was still in Brooklyn. But he's in Queens and he's embracing it. But cheers to Yeppe and his team, uh, Evil Twin Brewing. So the tap room's open. Now. Yes, it just opened up on Friday. Um, right now they have about four cans on on for for picture for pickup, and they're uh, doing a uh, some beers at nowadays as well. Um, yeah, it's very exciting stuff. It, it was a process as it always is. Um, it's a really interesting space. It used to be. A factory that was turned into a um, a dance hall, and then then now we've carved out part of it and made it into his brewery where he can kind of do a lot of his experimenting, barrel aged stouts and stuff like that. That's great, and Paul, great having you on. We're gonna have have you back on again. We're gonna stay and hang out and drink more of these great beers and uh, delicious pizza at Roberta's Pizza. And um, Evan, thank you so much for calling in from Virginia. Um, we hope to have you on hey. again. All right. Yeah, thanks for having me. uh, Thanks for tuning in. Uh, I'm Jimmy Carboni, the host. Thanks to our producer, uh, Justin Kennedy, engineer uh, Matt Patterson, intern Dylan Hoyer. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks for joining me here on Heritage Radio Network. All right. Woo. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, 
heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family and become a member. Thanks for listening.